Hi, and welcome to Understanding Dysphagia Podcast, a 10-part series with Dysphagia Outreach Project. I'm your host, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, regularly the host of First Bite Fed, Fun, Functional, a speech therapy podcast brought to us by speechtherapypd.com. In honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, the Dysphagia Outreach Project has pulled some of their amazing leaders together to share their knowledge with the world in hopes of raising awareness about dysphagia across the life continuum, as well as raising awareness regarding the dynamic volunteer work that DOP does every day for individuals of all ages with dysphagia. And this episode is dedicated to dun, 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 the SLP's role in head and neck cancer. So, without further ado, please allow me to introduce today's guest. Brooke Bielman, MS, CCC, SLP, is a speech-language pathologist with experience in the acute care, inpatient rehab, outpatient rehab, and skilled nursing settings. She has certifications in manual interventions like myofascial release, neuromuscular electrical stimulation, NMES, and the McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Program, MDTP. I made it through the acronyms, y'all. She helped develop a rehabilitative program for patients with head and neck cancer, which included pre-treatment instrumental evaluations, proactive therapeutic intervention, post-treatment instrumental evaluations, a cancer support group, and interdisciplinary collaboration with a physical therapist, occupational therapist, registered dietitian, and SLP services. Brooke has dedicated vast amounts of her time to continuing education specific to oncology and is the recipient of an ASHA ACE Award. She is the founder of Servant Leadership, a mentorship program for SLPs, and she's on the board of directors for the Dysphagia Outreach Project, which is this nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of those with dysphagia. She is currently on the oncology team in the role of clinical specialist for Tactile Medical, which can be found across the continental United States. And y'all, she is as beautiful and brilliant as she is kind. And I am so happy that you are here today, Brooke. Yay! Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. <sighs> and apparently you're in a desert. So this is this is quite the recording from like muggy South Carolina to a dry desert. That That's correct, right? <laughs> Yeah, we were joking because I had to pack for every season. I have coats with me, but then I have swimsuits because it's 93 here. But it was uh, snowing earlier this week when I was driving through Colorado. So interesting climates. Okay, wait. How how did you become a speech pathologist and then one that specializes in oncology? Because, I mean, I, I know in grad school, I didn't have that covered in my dysphagia class. So... What brought you from there to where you are now? So I knew since about the time I was 16 or 17 years old that I wanted to be a speech pathologist, specifically working with patients with dysphagia. My grandma had a stroke when she was in her early 40s, which resulted in left-sided paralysis. And eventually she had recurring strokes, which caused chronic dysphagia as well as aphasia. And seeing her work with speech pathology, I decided that I also wanted to be a speech pathologist. So initially, I thought that I wanted to work more with patients who um, who had had strokes. And I have done that in my career. But in grad school, uh, my best friend and I 
one summer decided that we were going to take a road trip down to Houston to attend the MD Anderson laryngectomy conference. It was a couple of days long and seeing how vital the speech pathologists were in the team at MD Anderson and the success that they were having with their patients and how integrated they were in the team, I it just lit a fire in me that I wanted to do that. I wanted to bring this proactive intervention to patients with head and neck cancer. And so when I started applying um, for medical positions, that was one of the things I was looking for was the opportunity to work in oncology, which brought me to my first position. The uh, position I applied for had a newly developed Sarah Cannon Cancer Center on the campus. Um, There wasn't a lot of involvement with speech pathology, but there was the opportunity to grow and develop that program on the therapeutic side of things. And so that's how I ended up developing the program that you mentioned in the intro and how that program became a protocol for the healthcare system that I previously worked for um, that they were attempting to roll out district-wide. That's amazing. So was that your CF, ma'am? Um, yes. <laughs> so you're telling me that in your CF, you set up an entire program. Like that's, ma'am, whoa, you for the win. <laughs> I convinced... I convinced a bunch of dirty old men to buy an MBS um, chair when I was a CF, but that's because my boss told me wear the red dress and the black boots. But I mean, you, that's, that's, <laughs> that's in the South, you'd be surprised what you can get to happen in knee high black leather boots. A lot of things. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I will say it wasn't, it was, it took a couple of years to develop this program, this protocol, but I did find that patients actually were my advocates. So I guess, kind of bringing it back to, you know, how did I get so, so focused on oncology and passionate? Because initially, I was like you mentioned in in my intro, and I and I always have worked in multiple settings, but I was covering pretty much everything. And I was also helping run a, a concussion team. But I had a patient and I'll share this, this story. I had this patient that was referred to me about a year post-treatment for head and neck cancer. So he had had um, extensive radiation therapy and chemotherapy and was told he would probably never swallow again. His intelligibility was probably around 50% to unfamiliar listeners and was aspirating everything. And I did everything I knew to do as a speech pathologist for his dysphagia. And like you mentioned, we don't get a lot of this in grad school. And so at the time, I felt kind of like I was on an island trying to figure out how can I help this patient. And I walked into my office on a Monday morning to my phone ringing, and this patient was on on the line, and he told me he was going to take his own life. And he hung up, and I couldn't get a hold of him. And so I had to be the one to call 911 and um, make sure that he was okay. And he ended up being okay, but that made me so angry because I'm like, this cannot be it. This cannot be all that we are able to provide for these patients. You know, what else can I do? And so that spurred a lot of additional education on my part. I had already done a lot of education, but I spent, I don't even know how much money and hours just really um, immersing myself in the oncology space to figure out what more can we do? Because, you know, if we're saving the lives of these patients, but then they are committing suicide after treatment, what good have we done, you know? And so I am happy to say that that patient 
after me going and getting additional certifications and finding um, additional resources like Tactile Medical. At the time, I was not working for them, but I found them. And this patient ended up improving his intelligibility to about 75%. And he was able to get back to an oral diet of mechanical soft and and thin liquids. So, and I'm just 100% authentic and honest with patients that I don't know what progress we are going to be able to make, but I will do everything in my power to help you meet your goals to the best of my capability. And I will refer you to someone else if that's what we need to do. Are you willing to partner with me? And I've seen really great results in, in doing that. Just, you know, being honest with the patients about what we know and what we don't know, but let's partner together to see if we can get you results. You literally saved someone's life by pursuing continuing it. Okay, so I have a soapbox. Okay, let me backtrack. I have a lot of soapboxes, but one of them is if you find yourself professionally that you have become complacent and you're just going along with the status quo, then you need to reassess either is this still the profession for you or where along the journey did you lose the fire that initially started it? Because the evidence changes, the evidence regularly changes. I mean, once upon a time when I was a CF, I actually treated patients that had head and neck cancer. And I know we'll eventually get to like fibrotic tissue, but it was amazing to me because I had never, aside from textbooks, engaged with anyone that had fibrotic tissue. And RPT pulled me aside and gave me training. And, you know, that's when I first learned about Dr. Bonnie Martin Harris and instrumental swallowy valves and, and like of that, that caliber that they could be done to that level of specificity. And it changed me even in my CF year. And it also affirmed that I really didn't necessarily want to work with adults long-term. So I appreciate that you do the magical things that it is that you do because that's not my cup of tea. Also, I did learn a fun fact that HPV is like the third leading cause of head and neck cancer, or it was like a lifetime ago. I mean, I don't know if that's still the case. Is that still the case? Yeah. So actually it's interesting. Um, And it kind of speaks to why SLPs now and will continue to see changes in their caseload and kind of leads into our conversation about survivorship. So prior to the prevalence of HPV, some red flags for head and neck cancer obviously are, you know, alcohol use, tobacco use, and then environmental exposures, among other things. But what we're seeing now, our patients are younger that are getting head and neck cancer. And the reason is the rise of HPV. So human papillomavirus is a sexually transmitted infection that a lot of people are exposed to over the course of their life. Typically, our body is able to fight off the virus and it's that's the end of it. But for some people, they end up developing head and neck cancer years down the road. And so this can lead to challenging conversations as SLPs. I know myself and then colleagues that work in this space have, we've talked about having these conversations with patients that come in and they're informed, hey, you know, your cancer is related to HPV and their spouse comes in with them and there's accusations of you know, adultery and things of that nature. So there's really a lack of understanding about HPV and that you can actually have this virus for a long time and you can get it by having sexual uh, interactions just once. And so I think I've posted about this on social media because I've heard some really negative um, and incorrect connotations about patients with head and neck cancer that they have poor morals and things like that. And it's, that's totally incorrect and judgmental and 
you know, speaking of soapboxes, I get really upset when I hear these things because I don't think it's our job as clinicians to one, judge anybody, but also that's, it's completely incorrect because you can get HPV from having, like I said, a sexual interaction just one time and you can carry it from then on out. And so there's really a lack of understanding about HPV, but like you mentioned, it is on the rise and continues to be on the rise. And so that's why we're seeing changes in caseload um, patients, you know, in their twenties and thirties and forties. So they're doing better through treatment because they're younger, but this also means they're surviving longer with the long-term ramifications of treatment for head and neck cancer. My best friend actually last year, and I know she wouldn't care if I shared this story with you, but I think this just again speaks to the prevalence of head and neck cancer. She's in her thirties. Her twin brother was having some symptoms and she asked myself and another colleague that knows quite a bit about head and neck cancer, what our thoughts were. And we both said, you know, get an ENT consult as soon as you can. Turns out that he did have cancer. And so he underwent treatment in his, he's like 30 years old and had um, cancer last year. And so he's fine now, but it's just crazy to think that people, you know, in their 20s, 30s and 40s are, are getting this. All right. So what are, what are the signs and symptoms that we need to be looking for? I mean, and not just unique for HPV, but I mean, I, I know the risk factors of smoking and, and drinking and my CF was in Gloucester County, Virginia. It was super rural and the primary income for the local community, they were watermen and watermen have, at least in that neck of the bay, um, it's a rougher lifestyle. I mean, everybody drinks all day out on the boats, they smoke a lot. So there's it's a, it's a not user-friendly lifestyle for one's long-term health. But what are the signs and symptoms we need to be looking for big picture for that and for HPV? So the current research indicates that if you both, you know, have uh, used tobacco and have consistent alcohol intake that your chances for cancer development increase versus like just using one or the other. That being said, as far as like symptoms to look out for, if you're concerned about development are chronic sore throat, I've heard patients having chronic sinus issues. So they'll say, you know, I went to my PCP for six months trying to get rid of this sinus drainage and I couldn't get rid of it. Any kind of soreness in the oral cavity or bleeding, pain in the ear. Um, I've had a lot of patients that have had chronic earaches, things like that. Um, so if you're not getting the answers, like in the example of my friend, and I will also mention that um, her brother did not have HPV related head neck cancer, but in his case, he went to his doctor and his doctor said, oh, you know, this is fine. It'll probably clear up in a couple of months. And, and it didn't clear up. He was consistently having a sore throat. And he's like, I'm, I'm just really concerned. And then he started having dysphagia, uh, difficulty swallowing related to the pain. And so at that point, that's when she asked me what I thought, and he got a second opinion, got a biopsy, and it, and it was cancer. And you hear that, honestly, pretty frequently from patients with head neck cancer that they are advocating for second opinions because their symptoms aren't going away. So those are just some of the signs you can look for. But I do feel like now I'm hyper vigilant of these symptoms. Like my mom had some uh, sinus drainage for a while, and I'm like, oh my gosh, if this isn't clear up soon, then you're going to eat so she's a nurse, so she's well aware of what I do. And she's like, I talk about lymphedema all the time now. But anyway, so I'm definitely like hyper vigilant of these things now. Uh, but just something to be aware of, because I think, you know, those things are can be pretty common, like related to allergies, etc. So sometimes we brush them off. 
But the sooner we can get that diagnosis, the sooner we can do intervention. And then hopefully we, you know, the physicians don't have to do quite as extensive intervention. Maybe they could just, just do surgery versus doing surgery and radiation. So the earlier the diagnosis can be made, the better. Okay. So can you kind of, and I know this wasn't not technically one of our um, learning objectives, but could you kind of walk us through what are the most common forms of treatment or intervention from like a oncologist perspective, not from an SLP's perspective, but from like the, the doctor? Yeah. So surgery, chemo, and radiation are the most common. And then the modalities used are going to vary patient to patient. So not every patient will have all three of those modalities. I will say the more modalities that are utilized, oftentimes the more symptoms that the patient is going to have on the back end. For example, my friend's brother that I mentioned, he only had surgery and he doesn't have a lot of significant symptoms now that he's done with treatment versus a patient that has surgery, chemo, and radiation will probably have more long-term side effects than somebody that just has one of those three. So the very last patient I treated in Virginia before we moved to South Carolina on Friday the 13th of January 2012, my husband was like, either this is going to be a really good move for us or or I was like, hey, you chose Friday the 13th, but my <laughs> it's great. Um, my uh, my very last it literally I worked right up until 5 p.m. in the outpatient clinic that afternoon because I'd spent all morning in the ICU because they um they actually hired an SLP from MD Anderson who left MD Anderson and moved to she was living over on the on the water side um, in Matthews County. She was amazing. Best thing to ever happen to that neck of the woods. But he was a a father of a James Madison University graduate student. And that's my alma mater. That's where I did my master's with JMU. And I got to see him in the OR with our um with the surgeons when they did his total glassectomy and they took part of his pectoralis major muscle and rebuild him a tongue. And my, it was okay, street cred. Y'all, I did not faint. The doctor says, Michelle, take a step back because I'm going to hit like the artery. And I was like, no, I'm fine. He goes, no, no, no. I'm not worried about you going down. I'm worried about like you getting covered in blood. And I was like, oh, word. Okay. And so then I took a step back and then not going to lie. I didn't go down, but my knees got a little wobbly. So street cred. But it was my last session. He was able to, um, and he ended up having chemo and radiation and um, he he had all three, but he was able to take um, nectar thickened liquids. And he was like, I can, I can drink a whiskey now. (laughs) I was like, yes, sir, you can. And he was able to eat like a, a mech chop consistency food. And just being able to hug him pre-pandemic, being able to hug, being able to hug him and have been part of his journey was just wonderful. And I always wonder, like, how is he doing? Like, what were the long-term effects of all that chemo and radiation on his body? Because, I mean, he had really fibrotic tissue and the PTs worked hard on his neck and his shoulder because the way the – they didn't have a tight – exposure because we worked in the sticks, right? So the radiation, it was an, it was extended over to his like entire, almost upper right quadrant of his body. And so there was a lot of, I don't know, 
science has improved dramatically. But um, yes, just so thank you. Thank you again. Thank you for doing what you're doing because I, I still I oof, can't do it. Okay. So back to what the SLP does when you have a patient that has had, you know, resections, removals, fake body parts put in, and then chemo and radiation, how do we go in and treat? What do we do? So first things first are instrumental evaluations. So thank you. Wait, say that again for the people in the back. (laughs) First things first are definitely instrumental evaluations. And it is my clinical and personal opinion that these patients, as many patients, but in, in these patients specifically, and I will tell you why in a minute, they need both a baseline video swallow study and fees. And by baseline, I mean baseline. It's as soon as we get them, you know, hopefully before treatment, so before they have radiation and chemo specifically, we need to be seeing them. That way we have those images and we know what their quote normal looks like. And then we also need to be able to do those post-treatment so we can see those changes. So I guess to elaborate on why it's my belief that we need both. So, you know, using a modified barium swallow study or a video swallow study, however you um, like to refer to it, we're getting that full picture, right? But we can also get a quick esophageal screen. A lot of times with these patients, we see... UES dysfunction. Um, pretty wait, much, I've wait, wait, wait. seen it pretty I, much. I know what a UES is, but for those of the individuals that have yet to have completed their dysphagia class, explain what a UES dysfunction is and what the UES is. Yeah. So upper esophageal sphincter. And there's a plethora of reasons why I think that a lot of these patients are going to have difficulty with upper esophageal sphincter opening you know, we know that everything starts in the oral cavity, right? So like you mentioned, if a patient has a partial glossectomy or a total glossectomy, they're already going to have an impairment from part one of the swallow. So, you know, all of the swallow from beginning to end is going to really play a role in in UES function. But another thing that I, I personally hypothesize on is the sphincter itself. What are the changes to the tissue due to radiation, because like you mentioned, we see those changes externally, right, with fibrosis. And with fees, we're really able to take a look at that tissue integrity. And so I personally and professionally think that fees is also very, very vital for these patients. And honestly, if I could only choose between the two, if I had to pick one, I would choose a fees over a modified. And the reason for that being because we see those tissue changes. Um, As a speech pathologist. Initially, I was really relying more on modifieds because they were easier for me to access. Um, I had more experience with them, with them, et cetera. But what I couldn't tell was, were the changes that I was seeing with video fluoroscopy, were those the patient's baseline or not? And when I would ask my radiology colleagues, hey, do you think that this is internal lymphedema? They would say, well, we don't know for sure. You know, if we... Um, don't have those baseline images. So that's why that proactive protocol is so important, but then also why fees is so important because with fees, you're really getting a look at that tissue integrity and you can say, yes, this is definitely edema. Not that you can't say that for sure with video fluoroscopy, but I do think fees makes it a whole lot easier to really assess that. Sorry, that was a very drawn out response to your your question. Um, So that's the first thing, get an instrumental. Yeah, that's that that's perfect, but then you but you gave the clinical reasoning as to why you would want 
you know, to follow up with actual visual observation. That's in, in my world, when I have an ENT tell a family when they hear a six week, oh yeah, I can, I can hear the laryngomalacia. They're going to be fine. They're going to outgrow it. And I'm like, no, 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 you, you don't get to diagnose laryngomalacia, trachomalacia, like auditorily. This is when we run a scope in and see the severity of it especially when they have failure to thrive and are losing weight and blah, 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 all the things. So yes, instrumental exams. Okay. So what do you do next? So you want to get the instrumental evaluation. And then another thing that I always think is beneficial, um, and you can collaborate with your certified lymphedema therapist. So that could be a physical therapist or an occupational therapist. But what I have found in working with tactile is that a lot of clinics around the nation don't have a certified lymphedema therapist. So I do think as speech pathologists, we can be empowered to help our patients by advocating for some of these measurements that I'm going to mention. So, you know, taking photos of of their face and of their neck so that we can really assess for edema. And I think that palpation, so palpating the face and neck, what am I feeling? And if you haven't worked a lot with patients with head and neck cancer, you may not really know what you're feeling for at first. Um, But the more you get your hands on patients, the more you're going to be able to help yourself differentiate is this does this feel normal or does this feel abnormal and then that's going to help us spark those referrals like you mentioned your PT colleagues helped you understand more about fibrosis just as my PT and OT colleagues have helped me understand more about lymphedema so in palpating patients I have been able to better understand what lymphedema feels like, what it looks like versus normal versus fibrotic, which that in conjunction with the prevalence of lymphedema for these patients has really helped me feel confident in making those referrals that these patients need to help better improve their tissue integrity, in turn helping improve dysphagia and communication disorders. So photos, obviously, getting patient rating skills. So maybe something like the MDADI or um, like an EAT-10, a patient perception rating. What are they feeling? Um, how are they rating? Their wait, wait, wait. So say, the, say those again slowly because I'm always on the good hunt for like swall qual is the one that I knew, like the swallowing quality of life indicator. Y'all, it measures baseline versus how they feel or how their caregiver feels about their swallow and then charts it over the course of their treatment. So can you say those ones again? Yeah. So I will say um, that my favorite one is the EAT-10, which is just the eating assessment tool 10. It's the reason I like it is just because it's it's really quick and easy for patients to fill out. But I also like the MD Anderson dysphagia inventory. It's like again, just another patient rating scale that we can utilize to help assess where patients are at with their swallow function. But then, you know, talking with your patients, what are their goals? Um, a lot of times with patients with head and neck cancer, they will have had changes in their vocal quality or communication. And I'm not claiming to be an expert in any of these areas, but I will say I've studied quite a bit more on dysphagia than voice. However, a lot of times you will hear patients talking about their vocal quality and how it's unrecognizable now that they've gone through treatment. So, you know, there's definitely things we can do as speech pathologists to help all three of those things, vocal quality, dysphagia, and communication. Because, you know, to your point earlier about your patient with the glossectomy, 
Um, if you have a patient that's had parts of their tongue removed, or like my patient I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, he did not have a glossectomy, but his tongue was so altered from the radiation that his speech was very unintelligible. So there's definitely things that we can do to help improve those things. So it'll be patient dependent, all of the things you're going to do. But I think that's why having those conversations with your patients to figure out what their goals are will help you determine what evaluation tools you need and then what treatment you are going to go forth with. I just found the eat 10. I wish there was, there's not a really good pediatric version. So I'm, I'm having fun. But there's not, right? Like, how how do you ask like an 18 month old how they're feeling with respect to like treatment for their PFD secondary to perinatal CVA? Like, you can't. But you you ask the parents and and. But I like the data driven piece of it, so I'm always like, hmm, will this will this fill my fill my my need? <laughs> okay, you talked more about um. The lymphedema piece, could you just explain what lymphedema is for those that are unfamiliar with it and how that can impact the swallow? And I know we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves slightly, but yes. So again, I will preface this with, I am not a certified lymphedema therapist. However, in my experience working with patients with head and neck cancer, have learned a lot about the lymphatic system. Um, So with the patient that I mentioned earlier, in his case, Finding out that these patients, oftentimes 90% of them is actually the statistic, have lymphatic impairment. So there was a prevalence study conducted by Dr. Sheila Reidner that demonstrates that 90% of patients with head and neck cancer will have lymphedema to some degree. So whether it be internal, external, or both. And how this plays into speech pathology. So like I mentioned, I was doing a lot of video swallow studies. And Initially, in the protocol that I was working to develop, patients weren't always getting referred to me before treatment. So I was seeing them after treatment, after they had had chemo and radiation. And so with video, a video swallow study, of course, you know, I could see those changes like an epiglottis and that looked like it was altered and a posterior pharyngeal wall that appeared to be thickened. And when the epiglottis would invert, it would hit the posterior pharyngeal wall, things like that, that you know are obviously abnormal. But once we started doing endoscopy more frequently, seeing how significant the edema was and working with my CLT colleague to really recognize that this was a lymphatic impairment, this is internal lymphedema, and this can actually be addressed. And so in the lymphedema literature, especially like when you're talking about breast or gynecological cancer, it's pretty common to talk about lymphedema and being more proactive on it versus in head and neck cancer, we as speech pathologists, at least so far in my experience, we don't talk about it quite as frequently. Although I will say Dysphagia Research Society did um, just put out a presentation on it. So I was super excited to see that. That being said, in my time, especially fresh into the, the field of head and neck cancer, there wasn't a lot of talk about lymphedema. And so when I made that connection that, hey, part of the etiology of this patient's chronic and often fluctuating dysphagia is lymphedema. That helped me get my patients the referrals they needed to my CLT colleagues and for home management tools that help them better manage their lymphatic impairment so that they could do better from a swallowing and communication standpoint, but also breathing. I had a lot of patients that had difficulty breathing and were on CPAP devices. And when we got them the right tools, they didn't need those anymore because 
they were managing their lymphatic impairment, which helped reduce internal edema. So, oh, I guess I I didn't answer your question about what is lymphedema. So um, are you familiar with the lymphatic system? Yes. And the fact that we're starting to actually find that it it actually, I'm sorry, I got so excited. I like tripped over all of my words. We're even finding that the lymphatic system um, actually at like a microscopic level, literally lays over and touches our brain where previously we did not think that the lymphatic system went into our brain, which is just astounding to me because it corroborates the brain mouth gut connection and the autism research with fecal matter transplants out of the University of Arizona. And yes, so yes, I'm slightly familiar with the lymphatic Yes, but can you explain it, please? <laughs> oh, you're fine. I was going to say offline, we'll have to um, nerd out on this topic together because being, having previously been in the concussion space, I've been very interested in the lymphatic system for my whole career from a cognitive standpoint as well. So we'll have to talk offline about that. But getting back to head and neck cancer and uh, the lymphatic system. So how I explain it to patients is that your lymphatic system is like a highway system throughout your body. It helps get rid of toxins. And we have lymph nodes and lymph vessels that move the lymph fluid throughout the body. So most of us don't even really realize uh, anything about our lymphatic system, right? Because they're working and we're healthy until they aren't. And so for patients with head and neck cancer, if they have lymph node removals or they have surgery or um, chemo and radiation, this can cause changes in the lymph system, which then causes the lymph fluid to not move appropriately. And so it's, again, going back to my highway analogy, it's like a traffic jam. And if there's nothing to reroute the traffic, we just get this huge pileup of cars, right? And there's no movement. And so that's why, well, part of the reason why you will see fibrotic tissue and you will see edema internally. And it's interesting because the current research on lymphedema talks about external versus internal lymphedema. And it talks about external lymphedema being most prevalent at three months and then being resolved at 12 months. So my thought on this is that, is it really resolved or has it become fibrotic? I've seen quite a few patients that are five years, 10 years post. And I'm sure you've heard of this or seen this yourself in your career that patients are coming in. They have difficulty breathing. You do an instrumental evaluation and turns out they're aspirating and they're like, I don't, I don't understand this. I've been, you know, eating and drinking for the past 10 years. And you discover that they went through radiation treatment 10 years ago. And when you do a fees, you look internally and everything is so fibrotic and the tissue is white and nothing's moving. And their voice sounds like this because there's just not a lot of movement. But what's so incredible and so powerful to me is the power of external external intervention. So what I mean by that is manual therapy, sometimes referred to as myofascial release, manual lymphatic drainage, and pneumatic compression. And I have literally visualized with my own patients the power of external manipulation and what it can do not only for external tissue changes, but also for those internal structures, thereby improving both swallow function and communication and vocal quality. Um, I had a patient back in 2019 
that his story is similar to what I just shared, had had treatment 10 years prior, came in, was having difficulty breathing, suspected it was pneumonia. We scoped him, aspirating everything. He was like, you know what? I can't do this. I'm going to do a peg tube. And I gave him my card. I was like, hey, if you ever change your mind, I'm here to talk and we can talk about options. Called me about three months later and he asked me what I could do for him. And I was, like I mentioned at the beginning, I'm always upfront and authentic. I am not claiming to be an expert, but I will do my very best to get you results and I will use everything I know to help you and I will make a referral if I need to. And he's like, let's do it. Let's try it. So he went from having a peg tube and only having a a free water protocol to being able to bring in a party pack of White Castle sliders to our head neck camp. And his wife cried when we did his last knees evaluation because they were going on their first date in six months because he could eat again thing that was funny was she was like, well, she's like, the only complaint I have is that you gave my husband wrinkles. And the reason he had wrinkles was because of the improved tissue integrity and improvement in the lymphatic fluid movement. And it's so interesting to see the correlation between lymphedema and dysphagia. And so I I do want to mention this because I hear this again all the time in working with tactile is SLP saying, I don't feel like I can do anything about this because it's not in our scope. I'm not a lymphedema therapist. And what I- But you're an orofacial myologist. You can go pursue that. Right. Sorry. And no, you're fine. Sorry. I got excited. <laughs> totally fine. And I think, you know, for, for me, I I took Walt Fritz's myofascial release course, now called manual therapy. And, um, you know, credit to Walt. I He has been a huge mentor for me throughout my career and talking to him about ideas because I went to him. I'm like, I have to help these patients and I don't know, I don't know what to do. Um, but then I've had some really amazing certified lymphedema therapy colleagues that we've really done a collaborative approach because these patients need, they need a collaborative approach. I'm not claiming again, like I said, to be an expert, but I do see huge improvements in swallow function and communication when we're actually addressing the tissue integrity, which is oftentimes a huge part in these patients' chronic and fluctuating disorders. And the reason it's fluctuating, again, is that lymphatic impairment. If we aren't managing the lymph system, the issue is going to come right back because it's chronic and progressive. And so if the patient doesn't have the tools they need to manage it, they're going to end up right back in your office, no matter how many effortful swallows we're recommending. And it's because their lymph system is damaged and they need a way to help to help manage it long term. I I distinctly remember being a CF and this patient came in and he had a horse strained vocal quality and the only indicator of any – with the complaint of like getting choked up, he was getting strangled up. That was his words. I don't, I don't know if you – it's old – country sound to me the way he described I get I get strangled up on my thin liquids <laughs> and I'm like yeah okay but there was no indicators as to what could be causing it and he mentioned on like his subsequent follow-up visit you know like we did a chin tuck I mean I did what I could because we sorry the rural hospital that I worked at a lifetime ago didn't have instrumental evaluation and we were the only hospital 45 minutes in any which way which is why we made the pitch to get the equipment and um on the second visit he said that he had had cancer um and he like generally pointed at like his thyroid like 
a lifetime ago, but he also always smelled of dip and had all the staining marks on his teeth and the lips and the whole nine yards. And um, that was such a unique learning experience for me at such a young age to see that something that was resolved basically a lifetime ago could have those lingering effects. And because like, just like you said, it's not covered in grad school. Our dysphagia classes don't teach us this. And we ended up getting him over to the big hospital, which was across the river and like basically an hour away. If you caught like, you know, traffic wasn't bad trying to cross the um, bridge that actually went up and down because it was the sticks, you know, they had to move the ships through for fishery. I say all that because that was my first experience also watching, working with the oncologist to discover that prior to me being there, they'd never had a full-time SLP before at that hospital, that for all of their head and neck cancer patients, if they had to do any type of surgery or any major triple round, that's what they called surgery, chemo, radiation. They just called it the triple round. They were prophylactically giving everybody a feeding tube and telling them not to swallow without any baseline swallow studies because they'd never had an SLP. So they were telling everybody, quit eating. You're not going to be able to eat. You're not going to be able to swallow. And then they were just putting peg tubes in everybody. And I mean, my little like 26-year-old self was like, this is a terrible idea. And my boss was like, okay, but why? And I was like, I don't know yet, but give me two weeks. <laughs> so like, I hit every single research article I could find and then came back to them. To, to try to create change. And I mean, I created ripples, but then, you know, when I left, they ended up hiring somebody from MD Anderson who was like, oh no. And she came in and used all the right terms and was able to explain everything that my little self in my novice attempt couldn't. I mean, I didn't have the, I mean, I'm not eloquent. I don't teach people to talk. I teach people to swallow. <laughs> so like multisyllabic words are not my thing, but Wow, that's that's a steep learning curve if it's not covered because unless you know to go that far back in a patient's chart and a patient's history, I mean, what if the patient's had a stroke and can't explain it? I mean, you've got to know those signs and symptoms just like you were saying earlier. Okay, wait, we've talked a lot about lymphedema. Talk to us about, can you kind of describe what fibrotic tissue looks like and feels like? Because I always thought it felt like leather. Yeah, I will say too, you know, to your point about going back in history and and me having covered multiple settings, you know, there's a huge push for instrumental evaluations, which of course we need instrumental evaluations, but the clinical swallow evaluation at bedside, I do think can be very vital for a multitude of reasons, but specific to head neck cancer, again, with palpation, what we're quote feeling can be questionable. However, you can kind of obtain some information on tissue integrity, right? I've had some patients similar to your point about your gentleman saying, well, I had had neck cancer 10, 20 years ago. Um, I've had some patients in the acute care setting, they get admitted for difficulty breathing or difficulty swallowing. And they don't even mention in their admission that they've had cancer because it was so long ago. They don't even think put it in there. And then I'm in there doing my evaluation at bedside and I, I palpate solely for this reason because sometimes you can't tell, like I mentioned, the external edema has oftentimes reduced um, by that point. And with palpation, like you said, 
you can tell a difference. So to your point, yeah, it feels kind of like leather. And I wish that we were on video so I could show you some photos I have of patients, but it looks like leather and it, it feels very tough. So I'm going to knock on my desk, but it does. It sounds very hard and you'll notice patients range of motion. So you'll say, and you can ask them, you know, are you able to look over your shoulder? And they may say yes, but ask them to actually do it because a lot of times what you're going to see, they're moving their whole upper body to look left and right. A lot of times they can't look over their shoulder when they're driving. What is their oral cavity range of motion looks like? Are they even able to do oral care. I've had some patients that can't even conduct oral care because their oral cavity range of motion is so reduced from these tissue changes. So those are some things you can look for as well as the skin color itself. What does it look like? Um, A lot of times they're going to have changes in their tissue integrity, like I mentioned from that radiation therapy. I always like to look in the submental space too, like the space below um, the chin and feel in there. What does that feel like? Does it feel really hard in the earlier stages? Yes. I'm sorry. I'm answering the questions as if I'm there. I'm like, yes, that's exactly what it feels like. Yeah. So in the earlier stages, what I describe it to SLPs and I don't know if this is a good uh, description, but this is what works in my mind. Um, initially, when they're in those earlier stages, it feels kind of like a water bath, a water bed, or if you took like a Ziploc bag and filled it partially up with water and like pushed on it, it feels like that. Versus when it's progressed and it feels fibrotic, it feels really, really hard. But what you might notice is that if you put a little bit of pressure, when you remove your fingers, there'll be indentations. And that's called pitting. And that is a sign of lymphedema. And so you'll see that it's not scary. Like don't be, don't be alarmed if that happens. It's just a sign of lymphatic impairment. When you gave the waterbed analogy, all I could think of was the time when I was a kid and we snuck into my um, mom's cousin's waterbed in his guest bedroom in our pretty Sunday high heels. Oh yeah. Oh God. We broke the waterbed and then we like snuck. We had to, we were like, we were not allowed in there. We were over there because he was off with, uh, he, cousin David always had a lot of hot chicks because it was like the eighties. Right. And so we snuck in there and poked a hole in the waterbed and then snuck out and never told my mom. And then he came home from his vacation with some random hot chick and, um, the waterbed had leaked everywhere. And I was like, Ooh, that was, that was, de- there was definitely some pitting in the waterbed. <laughs> Jokes. This is a head and neck cancer episode. You have to have fun infused. (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I hope to God he never hears that because that was an expensive break. (laughs) Michelle, I do I do want to mention, you know, in regards to lymphedema, like I was saying earlier, I get that, you know, are we able to really do this or like have a role in this as speech pathologists if we're not certified lymphedema therapists. And what I want you to do, not you, but anyone listening to this podcast is if you are concerned about this, go to the ASHA scope of practice. I I know we've all looked at it at some point, but I've really been diving really, really deep into our scope of practice because I've been approached by other clinicians telling me that I'm out of my scope. I don't want to be out of my scope. I want to help advocate for patients. And what I'm seeing, similar to what you experience in your clinical fellowship year, is a lot of patients are not getting this education from a dysphagia standpoint or lymphedema. And I hate to be morbid, but patients are dying from this, whether it be 
dying from suicide, they're three times more likely than general population to commit suicide and twice as likely as patients of other cancer types due to these chronic symptoms that they have. But also, they um, I've actually had a patient lose his life to internal edema. His way became so swollen, he was hypoxic. And this isn't just me. I have a, a friend and colleague who is an anesthesiology assistant. And um, she had a patient come in over the summer that was undergoing a procedure that was medically necessary for for some not related to head neck cancer, but for something else. And she told my friend, I underwent treatment for head neck cancer, including radiation 10 years ago. And my friend told me, she's like, my heart just dropped because I knew it was going to be so hard for us to intubate her. And it ended up turning out that it took three physicians to get this patient intubated. They had an artery. The patient was hypoxic for three minutes and she survived. But my friend was like, you know, what are the cognitive ramifications of her being hypoxic for three minutes? And that could have been avoided had we intervened and helped her potentially reduce the severity of these tissue changes. And so I want to direct anyone that's concerned about this, like I was to the ASHA scope of practice, which has a whole section on prevention and wellness. And what it says is that if we as speech pathologists know about something that can develop into dysphagia or communication disorders, it's our ethical responsibility to provide education and to advocate for this topic. And so that's why I cannot stop talking talking about lymphedema and um, the ramifications that it has for these patients with head and neck cancer. Do I think it's the only issue that patients with head and neck cancer have? No, but I do think that it is a huge part in the issues that they have and that they experience. And I know that we as SLPs can play a role in at the very least providing education because I've had some friends say, I don't feel as confident in this area as you. What can I do? And my response to that is you can do something. You can provide at least education. You can provide a referral or a name or point them in the right direction or at the very least tell them about these symptoms so that they aren't calling you freaking out about this edema that blew up over the weekend and they go to the ER because they have no idea what's going on. Uh, We can direct them to our certified lymphedema colleagues. There's a lot of things that we can do, even if we don't feel like experts, which is what I always tell patients whenever I'm working with them is that I may not have all the answers, but I will try to get you the answers because I want my patients to succeed. And I think that's true for most um, people in healthcare, especially if you're taking time out of your free time to listen to a podcast. Hopefully they're having fun with my totally off-color topic jokes. I mean, that's my job. (laughs) Y'all, the practice portal, and I just have to throw it out here because this is to go back to the soapbox. Y'all, there's a whole lot of um, fun to be had on social media. However, gathering all of your um, clinical insight and skills and evidence-based practice from a tick of the talk and a reel is probably not a wise decision. So... Did you know that embedded within your ASHA membership, ASHA doesn't pay me to say this. I'm just saying this because it's good news. You have access to the ASHA community app where you can ask questions, especially on SIG 13, which is the special interest group 13 specific for dysphagia. And the greats in our field will answer your questions for free. They offer recommendations on which journals, which resources to follow up with. And 
I highly recommend that when you pose a question, pose it there. Facebook can be scary. Instagram, I mean, I have lovely pictures of my children and me getting my butt kicked by like um, a 5K with my eight-year-old. That totally put me in PT for my right knee, but whatever. I ran a 5K with my eight-year-old, successfully finished the line. But that's not such a great source to find information when you're talking about a situation of this gravity. So please make sure that you trust but verify where you're getting your information from. So soapbox done. Okay, with seven minutes to spare, technically six, we have one more question to go through. Can you please discuss functional aspiration and um, considerations that need to be taken for our patients with head and neck cancer when considering an oral diet? Yeah, this is my favorite questions in relation specifically to patients with head and neck cancer. And I will give major props to Jonathan Waller, who um, does Dysphagia Cafe, because he put out an article about this a few years ago, which I feel like spread a lot of awareness on this topic. But oftentimes, patients with head and neck cancer will aspirate, and they're going to aspirate. And part of that, like I mentioned earlier, is due to the fluctuation in their lymphatic system, and as well as the other swallowing impairments that they get, like you mentioned, Michelle, if they've had disuse atrophy, if they've had cranial nerve involvement, et cetera, what we need to be doing is really assessing the patient whole picture. So if you are unfamiliar with the three pillars of aspiration pneumonia by Dr. John Ashford, I recommend that you check those out. That really clarified my decision-making process as a speech pathologist specifically for this patient population. So looking at do the patient's or does this patient have good oral care? What is their overall health status? And are they aspirating? So if they're aspirating, okay, well, can they do a good oral care routine? And are they up and moving around? Are they active? What is their overall health care status look like? And I have had many patients that I discharge and they're still aspirating to a degree, which is what we call functional aspirators, but they don't develop pneumonia. And that's because they're only checking one of those three boxes. So like I said, that really helped me to get really clear on my decision-making process and out, you know, weighing risk versus benefit. And as always with your patients, you know, asking them, what do they want to do? What, what is their goal? Because maybe... That's part of our evidence-based triangle. I'm sorry, folks, that is one corner of our evidence-based triangle is patient caregiver input. We forget that corner. It's an important corner. Sorry, continue. No, you're 100% right. Because we hear about that all of the time. Evidence-based practice, evidence-based practice. And we forget that the patient is part of that decision-making process. What do they want to do? If my patient wants to drink a beer, that's his goal, then let's do what we can to get him to drink a beer. Even if I'm like, you know, I really think we should probably stick more with water. Ultimately, it's their choice what they want to do. And maybe your recommendation is for nectar thick liquids and your patient doesn't want to do nectar thick liquids, but they're open to coming to see you for dysphagia therapy. That doesn't mean that they're non-compliant. It just means they don't want to drink nectar thick liquids. And I personally would never want to drink nectar thick liquids. So I think it's really having an open conversation with our patients about risk versus benefit and what can we do to reduce the risk of pneumonia development and what can we also do to help them improve swallow function. So if you haven't checked out the three pillars of aspiration pneumonia, I highly recommend checking those out because it will make your decision-making process a lot easier. I have so many more questions and I feel like you and I could spend like a whole nother hour on just... I'll just going through soapboxes, but um, this is not the time and the place for that. 
Um, I'm sorry. We have like a minute left. Is there anything else you want to say or a shout out you want to give about any of your additional favorite head and neck cancer resources before I ask you to tell us a little bit about Dysphagia Outreach Project? Yeah. So I will just say, you know, if you're intimidated by this patient population, don't be. They are so grateful for our intervention and they want they want our help. That being said, if you are nervous or you're wanting you know, just someone to talk to. I myself, I'm always available. Um, if you want to send me a message on Instagram, I'm happy to help kind of like problem solve. I have to give a shout out to Dr. Kelly Salmon. She's been a huge inspiration for me since my clinical fellowship year. And throughout my career, I message her, I think on a weekly basis about various things. She's incredible. Um, so I want to give those two shout outs, but, but yeah, if you need help, I am always available. And I know there's a lot of other awesome SLPs in this field that are also very passionate about head and neck cancer that are open to class. What is your Instagram handle, Brooke? It's just my name. So Brooke, B-R-O-O-K-E. And then my last name, which is Bielman. It's B-E-I-L-M-A-N. So can you tell us ever so quickly, if folks are interested and intrigued about Dysphagia Outreach Project, how can they follow Dysphagia Outreach Project? How can they learn more? Lay it on us. Yeah. So again, you can always drop me a message on Instagram and I'm happy to talk to you about the Asia Outreach Project. We also are active on Instagram. So Asia Outreach Project on Instagram, we have a Facebook page. And then on our website, you can apply to be a volunteer. And one of my favorite points that I love to talk about when I'm meeting with various clinics in my new role is that if patients are needing assistance, we actually have a spot on our website where patients can apply for assistance so that we can get patients with dysphagia the tools and resources they need. So if you you or someone you know is in need of assistance, you can get it through the link on our website. So y'all, if you're listening and you haven't tuned in to catch any of the other episodes, Dysphagia Outreach Project literally puts a blender, they put um, tube feed supplements, savories, crackers, for example, they will ship those resources directly to a patient's home free of charge. I mean, there's an application process, but if you are working with a family in a high need area, they're there to help you. Um, if you need thickeners, they're they're there. I have not asked, but whenever I saw my patients that had head and neck cancer, they always had xerostomia and um, were on um, oh biotin. Have y'all have y'all partnered with biotin yet? We have not, but that's a really good idea. And there's a lot of different uh, products on the market now for xerostomia. So definitely would be interested in collaborating with any of those companies because that's such a huge issue for these patients. Yep. So on the flip side, if you're in a position where you're able to donate or orchestrate a connection, y'all, this is this is a worthy cause. Trust me. Um, I have faith in them. My opinion may not count for much. I can't pronounce multisyllabic words, but I like to think I have a big heart to make up for that. <laughs> so, Brooke, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I am grateful for you and for you sharing um, uh, your time and your talents. So thank you, ma'am. Of course. Thanks for having me. Hey, friends. Thank you so much for listening to Understanding Dysphagia. Remember that if you'd like to earn credit for this episode, complete the accompanying audio course registered for ASHA CEUs on speechtherapypd.com. And if you are interested in joining SpeechTherapyPD.com, I have some exciting news. This month, in honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, 
June 1st to June 30th, 2021 for every registration with speechtherapypd.com that uses the coupon code capital D, capital O, capital P for Dysphagia Outreach Project, $10 will come off every single subscription, every price, whether you want the little package or the big package, and that $10 will in turn be donated to Dysphagia Outreach Project. So if you want this episode that grew your evidence-based practice to pay it forward a little bit more, join speechtherapypd.com and don't forget to use the coupon code DOP for Dysphagia Outreach Project. Happy learning, y'all. 